I'd invite you to open your Bibles with me to the book of Revelation. In chapter 2, we'll start in verse 8 this morning. We'll be talking about this letter to the church of Smyrna. And Smyrna, this church, represents one, of course, a local body of believers there in the city of Smyrna, but also the time period of what we call the persecuted church from about AD 100 to 313. And this period comes to a close at Constantine's Edict of Toleration in AD 313, which granted to Christians and to all others full liberty of following that religion which each may choose. This was the first edict of its kind in history that closed out this period. And we'll talk more about that edict next week. Revelation chapter 2, verse 8. And to the angel of the church in Smyrna, write. Now, Smyrna was another city in the province of Asia, about 40 miles north of Ephesus. We saw Ephesus on the map and then all of these other churches. Smyrna is known today as Izmir, Turkey. And there is actually still a Christian population in Izmir. This is the only church of these seven that is still alive in a local sense today. And that's interesting for us to look at as we see what Christ says to them. Smyrna rose to its peak after its conquest by Alexander the Great, roughly 300 years before Christ. And Smyrna, like Ephesus, was a wealthy port city that saw an extensive trade. The city was situated on the trade route that went from India and Persia to Rome. And it was because of all of this trade coming through that this city grew to such prominent status. This was a very wealthy city. And it was rivaled only by Ephesus to its south. Um, Would have been a very wealthy, decadent place. And very little is known about the actual church in Smyrna, besides what is contained in this letter from Jesus. We do know from this account, in verses 8 through 11, that this church went through the ringer. Uh, They were enduring heavy, heavy persecution from outside of the church. And namely, this was coming from the Roman government. It was a time of imperial persecution. And it was out of this persecution that the church, now speaking in an ecumenical sense, the body of Christ, reached its highest numbers relative to the population of the day. It was about half of the population at around 313 were Christians. And that is remarkable. We haven't seen anything like that happen ever in history uh, since this time. And Satan learned an important lesson out of these persecutions. He's wise. He's been around quite a while. He learns a lesson. He could not destroy the church with persecution. If there was a time in history when Satan could have destroyed the church using a force from outside of it, this probably would have been the time. And he was not able to do it. In fact, he did the opposite. 
He strengthened their faith. It was a trial by fire. He strengthened the faith of those who believed, and they grew in number. Imagine that, the hand of God on this church during this time period. And you know what they say, if you can't beat them, what? Join them. And that's exactly what Satan did in the next time period. We'll look at that closer next week. Um, That's when Constantine issued that edict and made Christianity basically legal. But right now, I want to take a closer look at this name, Smyrna. This is one of your elements of design that I asked you to look closely at. This word Smyrna means myrrh. This ends up being very significant to this message that Christ delivers to the church. Myrrh had several uses, one of which was as a perfume. But the myrrh had to be crushed for its scent to be released. This gives us an interesting picture. Crushed under the hand of the Roman government, this church gives off its sweet aroma to the Lord. Notice that there are no words of condemnation from Jesus in the letter to the church of Smyrna. He has nothing bad to say about them. This persecution was a purifying event, and Jesus is pleased with, quote, the works, tribulation, and poverty of this church. Myrrh was a spice that was also used in John's time to prepare bodies for burial. Because of its connection to burial, this spice signified death. Now I want you to think back in Scripture to some times that you can remember myrrh mentioned. There should be three in the life of Jesus. And there's also one which is contained in the Old Testament, but it's a prophecy of Jesus' second coming. We would expect to see myrrh mentioned there, but it is not. And we'll look at that. The first mention of myrrh that probably popped in your head was likely the Magi bringing a gift of gold, frankincense, and myrrh to the young Jesus. Gold, frankincense, and myrrh. Three gifts from these wise men. And all three of these gifts signify an important part of who Jesus is. You see, myrrh symbolized his sufferings, the suffering and death that he had to endure. And Jesus suffered in three distinct ways. Okay, he suffered as a man. And you know, each one of us suffer as a man. He suffered for man, which none of us can do, in a propitiatory sense. He suffered for man, and he suffered by the hands of men which we also share in his sufferings. Frankincense was a token of his divinity. Frankincense was used by the priests 
to offer a sweet-smelling aroma to God in the tabernacle. There was the altar of incense right outside of the most holy place, in the holy place. And there, morning and evening, the priests would offer frankincense. In the New Testament, it's seen as a symbol of prayer, this altar of incense. And gold represented his royalty, his kingship. Gold marked wealth and status, which are certainly suitable for a king. The gold, frankincense, and myrrh. In these three gifts, we see a picture of those three offices of Christ as prophet, priest, and king. Prophet, that's the myrrh. He prophesied his own death. Priest, the frankincense, which the priest would offer. And king, the gold, worthy of a king. Further, myrrh was extracted from the bark of a tree. A tree. You would take the bark of the tree and it would give off the sap. And you collected the sap, crushed it, and it would give off a sweet-smelling aroma. This is the myrrh that Smyrna is named after. The church who is crushed. And so we have this burial spice given as a gift to a young boy born in an obscure place to a virgin mother Parents who were not wedded yet. And I say that to get the point across that this was strange. Why would you give this kid myrrh, a burial spice? Unless it was prophetic. Unless it symbolized something. And at our vantage point in history, we know that it did. These things says the first and the last who was dead and came to life. Now, there were two other times in Scripture that Jesus has had a run-in, so to speak, with myrrh. The next is when he was on the cross. And we see this uh, recorded in Mark fifteen twenty-three, And this says that, Then they, the Roman soldiers, gave him wine, mingled with myrrh to drink, but he did not take it. This wine mixed with myrrh was used by these ancients as a painkiller. It would deaden the nerves to any sense of feeling. And Jesus did not take this during his most anguishing point in his life. He refused to be medicated. You know, and you can take what you will from that. Our Lord refused to dull his pain as he had our sins weighing on his shoulders. These things says the first and the last who was dead and came to life. Jesus doesn't forget this church in their suffering. He actually sympathizes with their hurt because he's been there. There are certain types of, of hurt 
that are only truly understood by others who have endured the same kind of hurt. And we see this with widows. If you've experienced the death of a spouse, the death of a child, you know, if you've watched an illness of any kind take the vitality from someone you loved, those kinds of hurt are so deep that they can only truly be sympathized for by someone who has gone through the same thing. And that is who Jesus is to this church in Smyrna. He's saying, guys, I was dead. I was persecuted. I was tortured and I was killed. And I sympathize with you in your hurt. But I came to life. I am no longer dead. I have conquered death on your behalf. There's that closeness you feel to those who've experienced the same trials as you. And this is a comfort to all Christians, these guys certainly, but to all of us as well, who face persecution and martyrdom, who was dead and came to life. Guys, we serve a living God. No other religious system can say that. We serve a living God. You can go to the tomb where Jesus was laid today, and he's not there. He is risen, and he is in glory. Praise the Lord for that. Now the next time that myrrh shows up, it is being brought to Jesus' body by Nicodemus. And this is recorded in John 19.39. It says, And Nicodemus, who at first came to Jesus by night, also came, bringing a mixture of myrrh and aloes, about a hundred pounds. Then they took the body of Jesus and bound it in strips of linen with the spices, as the custom of the Jews is to bury. So we have this burial spice being used according to its purpose in preparing the body of Jesus. The next time that we would expect to see myrrh is recorded in Isaiah 60. And this chapter speaks of the Lord's second coming. And verse 6 reads, The multitude of camels shall cover your land, the dromedaries of Midian and Ephah, all those from Sheba shall come. They shall bring gold and incense, and they shall proclaim the praises of the Lord. Coming on camels to praise the Lord, bringing gold, incense, and not myrrh. You see, the Bible is not only conspicuous in what it says. It's conspicuous in what it intentionally leaves out. There's no need for myrrh during Jesus' second coming. He's already satisfied that requirement of death. There's no prophecy there that is yet to be fulfilled. The myrrh is thrown out. He's only now offered gold and incense 
tokens of his royalty and divinity. He says, I know your works, tribulation and poverty, but you are rich. And I know the blasphemy of those who say they are Jews and are not, but are a synagogue of Satan. Do not fear any of those things which you are about to suffer. Indeed, the devil is about to throw some of you in prison, that you may be tested, and you will have tribulation ten days. Be faithful until death, and I will give you the crown of life. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. He who overcomes shall not be hurt by the second death. And back up to verse 9. I know your works, tribulation, and poverty. Jesus knows what this church is facing. He, when he was writing this, and still today, he walks among their lampstand, their local body. His penetrating gaze sees their affliction. But he also understands by experience the crushing that they are bearing up under. At Gethsemane, and that name means the oil press, he was moved, Jesus was moved with emotional turmoil because of the suffering he knew he was about to face. Even to the point of hematohydrosis, he was sweating great drops of blood. And then he came to the cross where he endured agonizing physical affliction. He knows what they're going through. Works, tribulation. And that word tribulation is not speaking of the great tribulation or the time period of the tribulation. Philipsis is simply hardships. I know your hardships, your works, tribulation, and poverty, but you are rich. Now, Domitian who was in power when this was written, was completely on board with Caesar worship. He loved it. He actually made it mandatory in Smyrna at the time of this writing. And there were emperors before who understood that they were just man. You know, They weren't God. They didn't have to be worshipped. Um, like I said, it was mandatory in Smyrna at this time. And there was a guild attached to pretty much whatever trade you were involved in. This would be like a union of today. You wanted to be a stonemason, a carpenter, a blacksmith, an architect. Whatever you wanted to be, you had to be involved in one of these guilds. And to be in the guild, you had to have your official papers from the government. And these papers certified that you worshipped Caesar and another god of the pantheon. Okay? So, as you can imagine, this became problematic for Christians. You know, I can't join this guild to practice my craft because I don't have these papers saying that I worship Caesar. And I'm not going to worship Caesar. So that leaves me with one choice. They basically lost their jobs. That's why they were so destitute. That's why the poverty was such a big deal in this church. The officials in the government would um, give you the opportunity to simply say, Caesar is Lord, and take a pinch of incense and offer it on an altar. 
then they'd certify you for the entire year. Christians cannot do that. We will not admit that Caesar is Lord. Caesar is not Lord. Christ is Lord. So, these Christians chose to bear up under this affliction. They chose to remain faithful rather than blaspheming their Lord. Many Christians had their livelihoods stripped from them during this period. And keep in mind that these guys are living in what was probably the second wealthiest city in Asia. And here were these poverty-stricken Christians living among the wealthy heathen. And you know, it's been said that this earth is the closest thing to hell that a Christian will ever have to endure. And likewise, for the unbeliever, this world is the closest thing to heaven that they will ever get to experience. That's a sad reality for those who don't know Christ. And this church was certainly poor in this world, but they were rich in spirit. Jesus says, I know your poverty, but you are rich. He says later to the church of Laodicea, you say, I am rich, have become wealthy, and have need of nothing, and do not know that you are wretched, miserable, poor, blind, and naked. This is a scathing review to a rich church, that church of Laodicea. Evidently, this church was rich in this world, but poor in spirit. I can't help but think of something that my dad said to me many years ago. Something happened that made me, a little boy, come to this realization that we didn't have a lot of money. Okay, And I don't remember exactly what it was, but um, when I came to this realization, I asked my dad, Hey, Dad, are we rich? His response has stuck with me for all these years. And he said, Buddy, we sure don't have a lot of money, but we're rich. Man. He went on to explain to me, what he meant by that. That he and my mom had been blessed in so many ways and that we have Jesus, which is worth so much more than any amount of money would ever be worth. You know, we're not rolling in the dough, but we're rich. And each one of us has to make a decision that we want to stand with the poor, rich church or the rich, poor church. And personally, I can say that we have something special here. We have something special. And from my heart, I will tell you that I would not rather be anywhere else. Um, This is where we're supposed to be. Though we may not be materially wealthy, we are so rich. Because we get to come here on Sunday mornings and we get to study God's word. 
We get to talk about it openly. Nobody's trying to hunt us down. This is a blessing that we should not look over. And of course, I want to reach more people. More people is great, but not at the expense of the integrity of the word of God. Jesus says, and I know the blasphemy of those who say they are Jews and are not, but are a synagogue of Satan. The Jews in this time period were also facing heavy persecution from the Roman Empire. And sometimes, you know, fairly often, the Jews would throw the Christians under the proverbial bus so that the Romans would turn their resources and their attention towards persecuting the Christians instead of themselves. Okay, and this is the problem that Jesus is talking about here. I know the blasphemy of those who say they are Jews and are not, but are a synagogue of Satan. The guys that did this, they didn't know God. They say they are Jews. They proclaim that, but they don't demonstrate it. They were not Jews. And this is the same as those Christians who plundered, conquered, raped, killed under the cross as their symbol. The Inquisitions. These are not Christians. They call themselves Christians and they go out conquering in the name of the Lord. But I don't see any love. Jesus said that you'll know who are my disciples from one thing. Not that they wave the Christian flag, but that they demonstrate love. And so these Jews, in the same way, were not Jews. It doesn't make me a Christian because I'm standing up here. It doesn't make me a Christian because I say, hey, I'm a Christian. I am a Christian because I know Christ. He is the Lord of my life. That is what makes us Christians. Both of those groups were claiming to be something that they weren't. I know the blasphemy of those who say they are Jews and are not, but are a synagogue of Satan. Do not fear any of those things which you are about to suffer. Indeed, the devil is about to throw some of you into prison, that you may be tested, and you will have tribulation ten days. Do not fear any of those things which you are about to suffer. And in the Greek, they would read this as, Stop fearing any of the things you're about to suffer. This was a needed exhortation for the church at this time. But it has never stopped being a useful exhortation to the church. Even today, stop being afraid of what you're about to suffer. Notice that Jesus doesn't say he's going to take the trials away from you. He's going to let you skate around the trials. He says, don't be afraid of the things which you are about to suffer. This is a necessity. In this world, we all encounter trials, hardships of some kind. You know, and it differs for each of us. 
But that is something that we are promised that we will face. John used the same word for tribulation in Revelation 1.9 that Jesus used in Revelation 2.9. Flipsis. And this, again, speaks of just a general hardship and affliction. The church will always face hardships, and Jesus tells us to stop being afraid of them. And he holds the key to hell and to death. Indeed, the devil is about to throw some of you into prison, that you may be tested, and you will have tribulation ten days. First, I want you to take note of who is throwing them into prison and what purpose that serves. We see that the devil is about to throw some of you into prison. Satan is leading this persecution of the church. And no doubt he seeks to destroy it by crushing the life out of it. That is his plan. God has something different in mind. What is the purpose that this persecution serves? That you may be tested. Even when Satan is trying to crush the church, he is ultimately serving God's purpose. God has him on a leash. He does nothing without the express permission of our Lord and Savior. We're told in Romans 5.3 that tribulation produces perseverance, and perseverance character, and character hope. God works all things for the good of those who love him. 1 Peter 1, 6, and 7 reads, In this you greatly rejoice, though now for a little while, if need be, you have been grieved by various trials, that the genuineness of your faith, being much more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to praise, honor, and glory at the revelation of Jesus Christ. So trials also test the faith of those who are committed to Christ. And this is what this persecution of the second and third centuries produced. It produced a testing of the faith. If you were a, we'll use the term lukewarm, Christian at this time period, you would stop professing that before you lost your livelihood, lost your life. It's estimated by some scholars of church history that approximately 5 million Christians were killed during this time period. To give you some perspective, estimates of the Holocaust put about 6 to 7 million Jews being killed during the Holocaust. I mean, This was intense, much more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to praise, honor, and glory at the revelation of Jesus Christ. That's what these trials were producing, faith that is more precious than gold. The trials they've faced have refined their faith. And you will have tribulation 10 days. 
Now, there's some question as to what these 10 days of tribulation refer to. And I'll give you a, a few options there. Some will say that these 10 days refer to the persecution led by Emperor Trajan, which was about to befall them a little bit after this letter was written. Trajan ruled from AD 98 to 117. Now, others will say that the 10 days correspond to the 10 emperors who led this charge against the Church of Christ. And there is a problem with this view because this time period only saw eight of those 10 emperors. Nero and Domitian ruled before AD 100. Now, Domitian was killed in AD 96. Um, so there's a problem there with that view. But if we look at other uses of the number 10 in Scripture, we find that it is used to denote a limitation of time. The idea is that there's a governor on this tribulation. It'll go for a set period of time, and then it will stop. It won't last forever. And you can find some references to 10 as a limited time, so to speak, in Genesis 24, 55, Daniel 1, 12, and Job 19, 3. And I'll let you dig into those on your own time. But I think that this is the best way to approach these 10 days of tribulation mentioned by Jesus. Um, but as with anything, I want you to look into this for yourself. Don't just believe what I say. Jesus says, be faithful unto death, and I will give you the crown of life. Now concerning Smyrna, Apollonius of Tiana refers to her crown of porticos. Okay, so this historian is looking at Smyrna, recounting this area that actually looked like a little crown. A circle of beautiful public buildings which ringed the summit of Mount Pagos like a diadem. So there was this semicircle, kind of a crown, around a mountain of public buildings. This white marble, it would look like a diadem on the city. And it's interesting that in Smyrna, there was this architecture that actually resembled a crown. And then Jesus is saying, be faithful until death, and I will give you the crown of life. There are many crowns mentioned in Scripture. And this crown of life is also mentioned in James 1.12. Blessed is the man who endures temptation, for when he has been approved, he will receive the crown of life, which the Lord has promised to those who love him. Paul says, those who love the Lord's appearing have a crown of righteousness waiting for them. In 2 Timothy 4.8, Finally, there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will give to me on that day, and not to me only, but also to all who have loved his appearing. In 1 Thessalonians 2.19, Paul tells the Thessalonians that they are his crown of rejoicing. 
So we see the evangelist rejoices when souls are won. And these crowns are a good thing. You know, we want these crowns. And when we get to chapter 4, we'll need to have crowns so we can cast them at Jesus' feet. You know, and that is, that's the end of these crowns. They come from Jesus, and they're going back to him. You know, we've done nothing to, to deserve anything that he has granted us in his kingdom. But he gives us these crowns, and we will cast them back at his feet. And I promise we sure don't want to get there with just a little helicopter prop on our head spinning around. We want crowns. I'd be embarrassed if I had to toss my helicopter cap at Jesus' feet. Be faithful until death. This is not an option, guys. This is a command. It's an imperative. You must be faithful until death. And physical death is a 100% certainty. Have you noticed that? Every generation, death is a certainty. Now, save for two individuals, okay? You got me there. Death is a certainty. The point is, if Jesus doesn't come for his church first, you will die. And your faith is the only thing that you will have when you're sitting there in your hospital bed and you're drifting away. Your faith is the only thing that will matter. Everything else will inevitably melt away in importance. You'll be left with your faith. Remain faithful until death. And I will give you the crown of life. And it doesn't matter how you die. If you die in a hospital bed, you die on a battlefield, if you die at the hands of persecution. Each one of us must remain faithful until death. Be faithful unto death, and I will give you the crown of life. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. This is the classic close to all of these letters. He who overcomes shall not be hurt by the second death. Polycarp was a disciple of John, who's writing this book of Revelation. And Polycarp was appointed to be Bishop of Smyrna. He was appointed directly by John. And Polycarp was martyred. He was burnt at the stake in AD 155 in Smyrna. The Jews, like we talked about, were actually the ones that put the Romans on Polycarp's trail. They led them to his house. And the Romans brought him into an arena where they were going to feed him to lions if he didn't testify that Caesar was Lord. He was not a card-carrying Caesar worshiper. It was well known that he was a Christian. After one of their attempts to make Polycarp give in, he said, 86 years I have served him, and he has done me no wrong. How can I blaspheme my king and my savior? So the crowd started getting riled up. They gave him one last chance to recant his Christian faith, and 
By this time in the arena, the Jews were running firewood in to the center, building this stack. So the proconsul, a Roman official, told him, I'm going to have to burn you at the stake if you do not say Caesar is Lord. That's all you have to do. You are going to give me no choice. Polycarp turned to him and he said, You threaten me with fire, which burns for an hour, and is then extinguished. But you know nothing of the fire of the coming judgment and eternal punishment reserved for the ungodly. Why are you waiting? Bring on whatever you want. Wow. So they tied Polycarp's hands behind his back. They intended to nail his hands above his head onto the post to keep him there on the fire. He said, no, you don't have to do that. I'm not going anywhere. I'll, I'll stay here. Just tie my hands behind my back. We'll get on with this. And tradition, now this is not a biblical account, but historical. Tradition says that the fire, once they lit it, came up around him in a sphere. But he was not touched. And they got so frustrated by this that one of the guards attending was ordered to stab Polycarp with his dagger. So he comes up, stabs Polycarp in the heart, and this story says that there was so much blood gushing out of the wound that it extinguished the fire beneath him. There was this white smoke that started to rise, and it smelled sweet. That's weird. And I can't help but wonder if it actually smelled like myrrh. I don't know if that was the case. It'd be kind of cool if it did. And so Polycarp, this bishop of Smyrna, died in the arena, faithful until death. Now, did you catch his reference to the second death? That second death that Jesus says, he who overcomes shall not be hurt by. But you know nothing of the fire of the coming judgment and eternal punishment. Polycarp referenced the second death. We will see more on this quote-unquote second death when we come to Revelation 20. And this is when death and Hades along with all who are not found written in the Lamb's book of life, are cast into the lake of fire. Now you see, here's the deal. If you're only born once, you die twice. If you're born twice, you only die once. That's the long and short of it. Now the Bible tells us that This lake of fire was made for Satan and his angels, not men. It wasn't created for men. That's found in Matthew 25, 41. People will only be there on account of their own stubbornness. You know, some people try to question the goodness of God by saying, how can a loving God condemn his people to eternal punishment. 
And there's a problem with the question itself. Because God does not condemn people to hell. We do that all on our own. We live in a fallen state. And in fact, God went out of his way to make sure that there was a way of redemption so that we did not ultimately end up suffering the second death. When Jesus was on the cross, he suffered that death for us so that we never have to. He actually went out of his way to provide a way of redemption. It's up to each one of us to choose redemption. We're not going there on account of God sending us there. We're going there on account of our own stubbornness, if that's what we choose. It's so easy to make that decision. You're either with Christ or you're against him. Now, though it is a difficult topic, I know that it is difficult to hear about persecution, Christians being killed. I know that it is difficult. But we should not be discouraged in this. But we should be encouraged by it. I do not claim to understand all suffering perfectly well. I don't claim to know the reasons that God gives each situation to each one of us. There are plenty of situations that just don't make sense. But I can trust that his plan is better than mine. And I do have a more sure testimony in the word of God. Romans 8.18 says, For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory which shall be revealed in us. Our present sufferings aren't even worthy to be compared to the glory that's going to be revealed in us. And if you feel like you may be trapped in some kind of suffering, I want you to be encouraged because God's purpose for suffering is to strengthen, to refine your faith. He will allow the heat to be turned up, but he will be with you in the fire. He will not leave us nor forsake us. And if you need some extra encouragement this week, read Romans 8, 18 through 39. Just start in verse 18 of Romans 8, read through the rest of the chapter. The sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory which shall be revealed in us. And it goes on. Guys, read that as many times as it takes to get it into your head. I know when I'm reading something, I can't just read it once because it won't soak in. You know, it's almost like it has to be beat into my thick skull. But if that's what it takes, do it. Be encouraged this week as we go into our jobs. You know, I know college kids are starting school. As we go into the classroom, there will be trials. There will be persecution from those outside the church. And 
we know based on the example given to us in scripture, how we are to deal with those trials. And I thank God for revealing his heart in those, those issues. As we close this study, we are going to do so in a word of prayer, and then we will reconvene over in the fellowship hall, and it will be a good time over there. Please pray with me.